Welcome to the Combustion Chronicles podcast, where bold leaders combine with big ideas to create game-changing disruption. I'm Sean Mason, founder of Man on Fire, and your host for the Combustion Chronicles. Throughout this series, we're bringing together the most unique and influential minds we could find to have honest conversations about not being okay with the status quo, blowing shit up, and working together to influence our shared future. We believe that when bold leaders ignite consumer-centric ideas with passion and grit, the result is an explosion that creates a better world for all of us. I'm here with my co-host, Matthew Nadu, Community Catalyst with Truth Tellers. On today's episode, we're speaking with Neil Mant. Neil is a producer, director, and media consultant with over 25 years of experience in film and television. Neil started becoming involved in film and TV in the 1990s, and over the years, he has won a top prize at more than 50 international film festivals, as well as multiple Emmy Awards for his producing efforts. Neil began his career as a journalist, winning the National College Emmy during his junior year at the University of Detroit. And after college, he went on to be a reporter for Post Newsweek and ESPN. Neil was the producer of the O.J. Simpson criminal trial and the Oklahoma City bombing for ABC News. In September of 1995, he wrote, produced, directed, and co-starred in the critically acclaimed indie flick, Hijacking Hollywood. Neil and his brother Michael are partners in the Los Angeles-based production company, Mant Brothers. They were produced more than 3,000 episodes of television for Disney, Showtime, Viacom, NBC Universal, and all major sports leagues, among others. And in 2015, Neil launched Mant VR, an immersive media company that specializes in augmented reality, virtual reality, and artificial intelligence. Neil, welcome. Matt is here with us, and we're so glad to have you on this episode. One of our first questions with you today, Neil, is what role do you see creative disruption playing in your work and industry going forward? Well, first, thanks for having me. It's great to be part of your show. I call this time period we're living right now, it's called the great disruption. And that great, the great disruption has gone beyond media to obviously what we're dealing with COVID-19 and our world is being disrupted. The media business has been under an unbelievable attack of disruption for the last 25 years, and it's really accelerated since the widespread adoption of the smartphone. And the real sort of answer to this is the most obvious, and that is people are consuming information and content on that device. So because of it, the other devices, which where I grew up uh, consuming content, the, the television set via a VCR or a DVD player, it just becomes this sort of piece of art on the wall that I use on occasion. And even the desktop, you know, since it moved to be a laptop, there's been a shift there. And, you know, people are still even limited running around with their computers. So the mobile device is really where everybody is. And the masses of Hollywood are struggling to figure out a way to create content that works organically for that distribution method. Yeah, I do kind of joke with my, I have an 11-year-old daughter, Neil, and I tell her that, you need to understand that when, you know, mommy and daddy were kids, we were the remote control. Or if the TV yeah. channel didn't come in, you had to go out and turn the antenna. And I like actually two nuggets there that you, you gave to us is that a lot of that's a piece of art now on a wall, right? Like, so how we are consuming content. And I love that you called it the great disruption. And I really would like to even dig in more with you, like, you know, we talk about uh, within our organization, 
you know, that you have to disrupt or be disrupted. And you mentioned the COVID-19 being this great disruption and what it's doing to media. Even for you with your 25 plus years experience in the industry, how has that changed your mindset? It's interesting because I actually feel comfortable about my position in the industry. Of course, I'm not comfortable about this timing. I'm not comfortable about this sickness. None of that is good. But what I have been working on and developing in the immersive space, it doesn't require the same teams to come together as a movie or a television show would because people are so close. You know, you got a guy pulling focus on a camera where there's another guy shooting with his lens or his eye right up against the, the, uh, the eyepiece. And so, you know, I mean, you can't have those two guys that close and the sound man's next to that person and actors are close to each other. In my universe, the things I'm working on, they're, they're done by remote people on a computer with very, very limited, if any, physical production at all. And I had been transitioning to that over a number of years, even over the last decade. Do you think it's been slowed down or sped up as far as more of a global utilization of what you're working on? From anything like this, from these great, great tragedies, pandemics and other challenges to humanity, out of these things, we get the greatest innovations. So there will be a large shift in the way everything is done. If you, if you were to ask a parent, who is now homeschooling, they may tell you that that's the the most challenging thing they've dealt with as an adult is suddenly becoming a a teacher at home and perhaps even working from home. Uh, Wouldn't it be easier for that parent if they weren't just looking at a book, but in the living room, they could have a three-dimensional augmentation of whatever the issue is they're trying to teach. They see George Washington standing there talking, or you see two giant geometric figures being put together and math happening three-dimensionally. For people who are visual learners, and that includes me, this will be game-changing for them. Augmented reality, as an example, you have a 70% higher retention rate than reading. Reading is like 10% that you retain it, but, but you're experiencing it in a physical world. And so it just, just to be very simple about it, your brain reacts to it in a much, much different and more powerful way. And so there are so many ways that augmented reality will now hit a fast track because of the need for these new adjustments in our society beyond the fact that it's going to help sell someone a new pair of shoes or anything else because they can see it. You know, you're, you're 40% more likely to go in and actually make a purchase of anything if you have had it in augmented reality because to be simple you understand it better. And then you're really moving towards being a buyer. So this is just going to move like crazy because the tech is there. Now we're going to start seeing 5G, which is going to allow for much more large assets to be pushed across a phone. So you can have these more real-time, interactive, impressive experiences. And so the timing just all happens to be just right. And we're going to see people over the next 12 months really start using AR on a daily basis in subtle ways. And then over the next three to five years, it will begin its process of, of killing the smartphone and the smartphone should be completely gone within seven years. But my mind just kind of went boom, right? <laughs> like, so let's dig into that. So you know, in 2015, you launched this immersive media company. Can you explain to the audience what the difference is between augmented reality, virtual reality, and artificial intelligence? Because I think to the normal consumer on the street, they hear that and no one can really 
talk about that difference and even put it into perspective of I'm one of those parents that have now had to become a homeschool teacher. So can you kind of put that into perspective, the difference of what those three are and how your passion and what led you to go into this space? Again, I'm going to give you a few different terms and I will break it down for you in a very simple way. So artificial intelligence and machine learning, let's just put them in one group because you're going to hear those words. You're going to hear machine learning and artificial intelligence, and there are differences between them. But for the most part, for our discussion, just put them together. They're both the same thing. So for the average person, if you hear AI or you hear machine learning, it's the same. It's like car or automobile. It's the same. So let's talk about that. So this technology is the kind of thing that we're all really used to when you go into Google and you start typing something. Now, maybe five minutes ago or five seconds ago, you thought of something and you had never thought of it before. First time you're thinking of it and you go to start typing it into Google. And after two letters, it knows what you're talking about, what you want. And you say to yourself, you say, wow, you know, someone is listening to me. They're in my head. They're in my brain. Well, to a certain degree, that is true. That is the augment. That's the artificial intelligence and the machine learning. It knows you that well. It's able to anticipate your thoughts based on your previous behaviors. And so you probably didn't just think of that. You had shown signals of that over time. Could it have been hours, minutes, weeks, days? It is anticipating your thoughts. Now, it doesn't always get it. Sometimes I'm typing 10, 12 words. And I'm like, why isn't this thing getting it? And then it gets it. But that's what that machine learning and artificial intelligence is at the smallest level that we all know. You know, the next level is you're being fed different things on the internet. So if I search blue sneakers on the internet, it knows that I searched it. It's tracking me across my devices. It's following me and it's giving me that information. And so that's the kind of AI that we're seeing. And it feels annoying, but in many other respects, it's going to make your life more efficient. Because the devices and the ways the way we interact with technology will tailor things to us. Now, the bad part of that, of course, is it may serve you too much of the same and not go broad. And that we hear about that with Facebook, where, oh, I only see 10% of my, my crowd, and so I'm not seeing the rest of it. It's because the AI is moving in the background. It's identifying who you like, who you're most likely to respond to, and it's feeding you that information. Now, VR and AR or the, literally the complete opposite. So VR is when you're enclosed in an environment and that is done through goggles. You've probably seen these big bulky things or maybe you saw the Samsung gear, which was a phone attached to your face and it would like literally get really hot. So these are ways that you go into a virtual environment, whether the Rift or the Go or the, the HTC Vive, all great products. And you go into this alternate universe and the best way I can describe that is the holodeck from Star Trek. You literally can walk in there and it's just a blank environment. You'll see maybe digital barriers that show you how far you can walk and you flip a switch and now you're on top of Everest. And it could, you know, depending upon the quality of the production, it can be perfect quality, you know, if it's created in a game engine and there's an artist who created it. And it, by the way, there are Everest experiences. You could be on the moon. You could be in a race car. There's endless experiences, but you could also have very advanced training experiences. And this is where we're seeing a lot of success in VR right now. So imagine you know, the scenes out of Up in the Air with George Clooney where he goes around and he has to fire people. Well, imagine that's your job and you're just getting started at it. That's not something you really want to learn on the job. It would be great if you could have experience with that. And there's a, a really good company called Tailspin and they do that sort of thing where you put the goggles in and you're firing this person. You see this three-dimensional person in front of you who is built on artificial intelligence 
which is essentially a chat bot. So when you're, you're on American Airlines on the website and you're trying to book something and this, this pop-up says, hey, talk to me, I can book a flight. Or when you call and they're like, hey, I'm a, like a human, I can book your flight. That's the artificial intelligence. So now they've put this artificial intelligence into this virtual being within a virtual environment and it has been programmed with many responses, which is you say, hey, buddy, you're fired. And the guy goes, oh my God, I have a family. What? I wasn't expecting this. I worked really hard last week. Is there something we can do? And it's smart and you, it will answer your questions and you can talk back to it. And it puts you in a situation where you have to learn how to really have empathy with this person and get them through this difficult time, but yet complete your business. Would this humanize that more? Because in your mind, it feels real. No, it, it really humanizes it. And, uh, and it, because your brain is affected differently, you're in that environment, you're totally immersed. And I'll give you even a simpler example. When I had my first VR experience many years ago, it was you know very basic. You put the goggles in and it's just massive cables hanging out of it, hooked it, hooked it into this huge computer. You can only walk like five feet. And when I put it on, it was, you know, like, looked like Pong, this early game engine. And, uh, and it kind of looked like the Goonies, where you were walking over that thing and the, the bottom of the fall was dropping out into a cavernous pit below you. Well, this was, the bottom fell out and I was standing on a balance beam across from one area to the other. And it was like a hundred foot drop. And I'm in a conference room doing this and people watch me were like, you are making every effort to walk toe to toe on this balance beam and my brain was in there on that beam and I was afraid to fall off either side. And when I did fall off, it had, you know, it, I went downward and I had the sensation that I was falling and my brain felt that I was falling and I'm in this really bad game engine, but because you're so immersed in it, you will behave a specific way. So certainly it would create empathy and it will certainly help you learn to be a better employee and be uh, better at whatever it is you're trying to learn. Now, AR, again, on the training side, is also amazing, but it's the complete opposite. It's in the real world. And right now, the most common device that any of us would use would be a mobile phone or an iPad. And you see with companies like Wayfair or Ikea, you're able to pick up one of their items. Maybe it's a vase or a rug or a chair. And you point the, the camera, the camera of the phone, is, and you look through the, your room and you can see everything. And you tap this device and it will augment that device in the room and you can move it around and it will have a spatial existence on your device, meaning you could walk up to it and it will get closer the way it would. It will be locked to that place in time and space. You could walk around it. You could see it from every angle. And so these are things that are going to help the consumer make more educated decisions. Now on the training side or on the enterprise side, imagine if you're somebody and your job is to be on a power line somewhere, or you're on the top of an oil rig in the middle of the South Pacific, and there's a storm, and you're trying to fix something that is critical to everybody's survival. Now, you would be wearing AR glasses, of which there are many in the, in the market. A good example is Google Glass or Microsoft HoloLens. And a lot of people think Google Glass wasn't a success, when in reality, as an enterprise device, it was. I mean, certainly it makes you look like a cyborg. So it's not like for the everyday person. But, but in this case, you could be on this dangerous environment and you could have the augmentation of the power device you're working on or whatever you're trying to fix hovering in midair in front of you like Minority Report. And you could see exactly the plans in real time and be communicating 
with somebody back at headquarters and you would see them all projected in the air around this device and it would be the perfect specs. And so that would probably help you from getting electrocuted or falling off or any number of issues that could happen to, to injure you. And so we're going to see AR work on the consumer side, on the entertainment side, on the education side, and for sure on the enterprise and safety side. I had an early VR experience, so I can have a claim to fame in my life that I climbed Mount Everest. Those that are around me laugh when I say that. But I actually did it through a virtual reality experience where I got, I sat in like a phone booth um, and put the glasses on, actually stood and had to do the climbing and it had all the climactic things happening in there, like some rain and, you know, misting. And for me, it was when I got done, I was fully sweating. My heart was racing because the whole time I thought, I'm going to fall off this mountain. But let alone, I knew that I was standing, right? Then subconsciously, you know, you're just in this booth. Mm -hmm. And at that same conference I went to, doing the augmented reality, and I loved how you're putting it into perspective with training and even with that oil rig situation, how you can now, like people don't have to study manuals and learn processes and try to keep it all in their brains. Like so long ago, you know, in the trade world that they can actually throw a pair of augmented reality glasses on at the spot where they're working and it walks them through mm -hmm. how to make that repair. Now I've said to my wife, can I change the electrical plugs out in the house if I use augmented reality? And her answer was not words that were very polite to me. Like, no, you're not touching that, right? But, you know, in this new world and this new norm we're moving into, I do a lot of work in healthcare. I would love to know your perspective. Google Glass, I love you said it wasn't a failure, it was from an enterprise. I know where Google Glass has really helped in the healthcare space for doctors and dictating notes. How do you see this world of VR and AR disrupting even greater and at a faster pace now? We actually heard this morning someone say to us that healthcare is going to be in every industry now. That's going to be the new norm. How do you see AR and VR starting to really accelerate and disrupt now in this new norm we're going to have to live in? I think you're going to see better surgeries, less mistakes happening because it's going to move now. You're going to, you're going to, again, you're going to have a lot of things come together at the same time. And something else we haven't really talked about, which we're going to add into the discussion now, which is robotics. So when you have this ability to have complete precision between the artificial intelligence and the robotics, and then you throw something on top of that where you have zero latency with 5G, and now you throw something on top of that where you can use augmented reality. Now the best surgeon in the world that you need to have for whatever happened to you and that person is London and you're in Los Angeles and you need this person because they're the person, well, you could walk into a treatment center in Los Angeles with robots you'd lay on the table. And by the way, there's already robots doing surgeries. And, and what I'm about to talk about is not a futuristic idea. This has already been done. So, you know, you need to have a, a heart surgery and this guy is amazing and you want to work with him. Well, you get on that table, there's some other people around who are making sure that your blood pressure is right and your anesthesia is right. But the robots are doing the surgery and that person's wearing gloves in England, wearing, you know, these what are called haptic response gloves where they can have a sensation, a tactile sensation of using those robots from across the, the world. And they will be able to do that surgery in real time. You know, take that to the next level where... 
telemedicine moves from just someone on a flat screen to being an augmentation in the real world. And now I have this doctor, I have this sense of presence that they're in front of me. And then with the right kind of cameras around us, they're able to see me three-dimensionally and they're able to walk around me, whether it's in VR or in AR. So these things are going to bring people together at a whole different level on a global basis. And now what we've seen in this disruption because of the COVID-19, we're seeing how everyone is used to working at different hours and we're not kind of in the same rigid schedule. Things can work on a flexible schedule for some people, which will allow people to work more on a global level. You know, if I'm working sort of on European time from Los Angeles, you know, why not? So you're going to see just a complete shift in behavior and in business. And because you can be anywhere at any time, that's going to change who is accessible to everybody else. It's fascinating. Why do you think there was such a lapse? We have trained pilots for how many years and flight simulators, right? Mm -hmm. Why do you think it there has been such a lapse for it to become more consumer-facing and the adoption of it. I, I almost look at this AR, VR world, much like when you just talked about telehealth. Telehealth has been an amazing answer for years, but it has struggled. But now because of this virus, it's getting accelerated again. Why do you think there was that lapse from what we've done for years for pilots to coming to a consumer front technology? It's a number of things, but it really comes to technological leaps. So in the pilot situation, you're talking about a, a pretty heavy duty device that they go into. And it's, it's, it's very expensive and it's very specific in the way it works. And so th that has been a, a product that, that can be purchased by big, big companies and they can have these experiences for the pilots. It's not something that you and I are going to put in our living room. When you talk about what's needed to have the low latency and the volume of information needed to have these experiences, that's something, you know, just straight up bandwidth issues. From a technological standpoint, you know, it's like, like, why can't we have this when I have a device in my pocket that will is a gateway to every single piece of history and information on planet Earth? You know, that didn't exist until recently, you know, in that span of human history. But because of we just take that for granted how amazing the smartphone is and what it can do. It's just crazy the different innovations that have brought. And so the next level of this, it's not just we're putting a pair of glasses on. It's we're moving into the next level of computing. Mm. I mean, this is, this is the biggest thing ever in mankind, ever. You know, we talk about forever. It was the printing press. You know, it allowed the masses to be educated. And then we move on to electricity. Wow, that was a big one. You know, we put light <laughs> where there was dark. We put heat where there was cool or cool where there was heat. That was a big one. And then we talk about the information age and the internet and the personal computer and the mobile devices. These are incredible, but they all will pale in comparison to what is the next level of computing, which is called the spatial web. We are essentially going from mainframe to desktop to mobile to spatial. And spatial is three-dimensional, and it means that every single thing, everything on planet Earth, whether it's an orange, a cat, a tree, or you, or a building, you will be able to, whether through your phone or through your AR glasses or your futuristic AR eyewear, maybe contact lenses or a chip in the back of your retina, whatever it is, you will be able to have a superpower and see that information. 
you will never forget a name when you walk into a room and you see everyone's face and it registers with the facial interaction of the artificial intelligence and puts their LinkedIn profile next to them or their Facebook profile. And then just by looking through your eyes, you'll be able to search their Wikipedia or their Instagram. And it will just be mind-blowing the kinds of ways we are going to be smart and then be dumb at the same time. You know, you mentioned (laughs) people not learning manuals. You know, that's probably kind of cool, but it's not a good idea if the power goes out and you really got to know this stuff. You know, there needs to be a core understanding. And so you're going to see breakdowns in different le- ways. Now we see a breakdown right now because the healthcare system wasn't set up for this eventuality. Well, if something happens to the internet and that stuff breaks down, you're going to see people freeze and you'll see a lot of problems happening and moving things around uh, just because it's all going to be so so reliant on this uh, technology and the, the IoT, the internet of things. Wow. There's a lot to digest in that, that last mm-hmm. segment there. Uh, Neil, I know you met Matt through a, a men's organization there in California. And, you know, Matt's working with us in this truth tellers. And so we have this tagline and I would love to know what it means to you. And I, as a man, uh, as a professional, when I say to you, living authentically in a land of bullshit, what does that mean to you? How does that ring to you as a, as a man and, and a business figure? You know, it's a good question, and I'd have to give real give it more thought to, to probably give you a great answer. We'd have to check check back with me at some other time, but I'll do my best here. So, Matt and I are in a club called the uh, Adventures Club, and we're both extensive travelers. You you mentioned my my some of my credits earlier, and while that may seem like I did a lot of things, and I guess I did, it's my travel that I've been able to to wedge in there in between those jobs that has been my biggest accomplishment. That and picking my wife. But um, you know, I've been to 120 countries. And I, through that experience, I've, I've really gained a better understanding of myself and of other people. And I think I give people a lot of leeway. I understand that we're all different. You know, I came from an environment outside of Detroit. My parents were very well educated. They were extremely naturally smart. I was a terrible student. I mean, a terrible student, the complete opposite of them. And I also, from the beginning, was not a guy who sort of fit in a box. And it's not like I had a vision. I just knew I wanted to be in entertainment somehow. But I I didn't really focus on things. I had trouble in school learning because, again, I was a visual learner. And so Neil was going to do his own thing. That was kind of what everybody understood. And because I didn't fit into these things, I wasn't a, a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, nothing really connected with me. I was, I was by nature an entrepreneur. And that led me to producing you know, as a teenager and winning awards in college. And I was reporting by the time I was 20 and doing OJ at 25 and movies by 26. And so that was just the nature of who I was. And I realized very early that that is not how other people are. And it's only later in life through traveling and through business that I've realized, you know, there's nothing special about me. You know, a lot of my friends, they look at it and they say, oh, my, I look at my Facebook and they see these travel photos or they see I'm hanging out with a celebrity making a movie or a TV show. That's just how my job has worked out. And that's where I, I gravitate to, you know, uh, I remember one time I heard Bono say something and he's like, you know, don't be impressed by what we do. This is what we do naturally. It takes work, yes, 
to fine tune it and be together as a band. But this is our skill. You know, this is what we do. It's, it's, it's just what's innate in us. And so other people, they may have a drive to be in an arena. Maybe they want to be an engineer or maybe they want to be a doctor. But that, that bullshit comes in with them because of their business, because of bureaucracy, because of their requirements as a man to provide for their family. And through these other struggles, they stay in this job that they're not happy with, but they have to do it because they're 30 plus and they, they've started a path and they can't make a turn. No, I can make a turn anytime. I can go right, I can go left. And it's the nature of what I am supposed to do in media as I'm supposed to adjust. Most people need to be on that track to continue to have success on that track. And so that leads to a different level of stress in their universe. And so they are doing their best. And the bullshit, I think, more often than not comes out of a frustration. And I want to give people that leeway because it really makes sense to me. I understand as an entrepreneur how hard it is for me to go out there and constantly be putting myself in line and try and think of the next big thing. And then try and be put in charge of those things. But what I have learned over the years is I have learned at the apps, if there's one thing I'm the best at of my whole career and at work and with dating, because I'm I'm five foot six, 80% of women would reject dating me. That doesn't mean I didn't do well and have girlfriends and date, but I'm just saying out of the gate, if you ask a woman who's 5'8 or 5'9 and she's dating a 5'6 guy, the answer is a no. It's not even a starter. It's a zero chance. So whether it's through that or it's through my, my many TV shows and movies and other projects that are just hugely wild swings that I create, I have learned rejection. I have been kicked in the nuts so many times, but yet had to get back up because that was the only way I could survive. Where these people that are dealing with this bullshit, they can't take the rejection and leave it and say, screw you, I'm going somewhere else. It's not even possible for them. So it leads to an unbelievable lot of bullshit where they're just trying to survive. And so I I feel for that person. And I know they're trying to be good. I, I actually put a smaller percentage of people who are willfully being bullshit. I think people are just scared and and trying to, to make it for themselves and their families. And there are a whole different kind of pressures than each every, than every other person. Well, I can't wait to hear your answer when you actually have time to think about that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I love your transparency and honesty in that, right? Well, we're coming to a close. So uh, we got three questions called the combustion questions for you, Neil, that we just uh, would love a, a short answer around. So... Here's the first question. If you could open a restaurant, what kind of food would you serve? I would do comfort food. That's it. I would make the things that I can make very well. So they'd be my signature dishes. And they're things that I have served to people over the years. And they're all been, oh my God, this is just, this, this is a bullseye. You know, this is really good. This is a really good bolognese. This is a really good chicken dish. This is very good steak. I'm really good on my grill. I would use my standards and I think I could open a, a local joint that would would suffice. I don't think it's a billion dollar business, but it, you know, I keep, keep it going. <laughs> yeah. But I, I don't want to be in the restaurant business. I feel for the people in that space. It, yeah. you know, it, it seems like a lot of different kind of work. And again, given my skill sets in life, I wouldn't be suited for that business, but that's what I would do. Awesome. So second question, beach or mountains? Mountain. And why? Uh, my wife's a redhead. Uh, she's as white as a ghost. She would catch fire at the beach. 
<laughs> yeah, there you go. All right, and here's here is the the last one here for you. So, Neil, tell us what do you think about celery? Well, it's interesting that you can take celery home, you can cut it off a piece of it, and you can put the celery in a little water cup, and it will grow back. I think that's kind of interesting that it re- regenerates in your house, so you can have an endless supply of celery if that's your thing. Uh, you know, it's super bland. I don't really like the way it gets sort of stringy when you're chewing on it. You know, when I was a kid, it, I would have it with peanut butter. If I'm at sort of an event and there's like a celery plate and, and carrots and other stuff, yeah, I'll eat it. But, uh, you know, if I'm in the supermarket, I'm not buying it. <laughs> well, Neil, thanks for joining us. So much information. Definitely makes me look at celery. I may have to go try to cut some up and see if it grows back. My daughter would like that. Stay safe and be well, my friend. Talk to you soon. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Combustion Chronicles. None of this would be possible without you, the listener. If you'd like to keep the conversation going, look us up at Man on Fire Social on Instagram and Facebook, or find us on YouTube at the Combustion Chronicles. Give us a shout and join our disruption movement. And check out this episode's downloadable recap page at manonfire.co. We know you lead a busy life, so if you're driving, exercising, or maybe you're just blowing your own shit up, don't worry. We've already taken the notes for you. Each recap is filled with guest information, episode themes, quotes, resources, and more. And remember, please subscribe, rate, and review if you like what we are doing. And if you don't, do it anyways. Stay safe and be well.